Chapter 50 of The Deluge, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deluge, Volume 2, by Henrik Sienkiewicz. Translated by Jeremiah Curtin, 1835-1906. Chapter 50 A week later, Kmichitz crossed the boundaries of electoral Prussia at Rygrod. It came to him easily enough, for before the departure of the full hetman, he disappeared in the woods so secretly that Douglas felt sure that his party too had marched with the whole Tartar-Lithuanian division to Warsaw, and he left merely small garrisons in the castles for the defence of those parts. Douglas, with Radziejowski and Radziwill, followed Goshevsky. Kmichitz heard of this before passing the boundary, and grieved greatly that he could not meet his mortal enemy eye to eye, and lest punishment might come to Boguswa from other hands, namely from Volodyovsky, who also had made a vow against him. Hence, not being able to wreak vengeance on the person of the traitor, for the wrongs done the Commonwealth and himself, he wreaked it in terrible fashion on the lands of the Elector. That very night in which the Tartars had passed the boundary pillar, the heavens grew red from flames. An uproar was heard, with the weeping of people trampled by the foot of war. Whoso was able to beg for mercy in the Polish tongue was spared at command of the leader, but German settlements colonies, villages, and hamlets were turned into a river of fire, and the terrified inhabitants went under the knife. And not so swiftly does oil spread over the sea when the sailor pours it to pacify the waves, as that chamble of Tartars and volunteers spread over quiet and hitherto safe regions. It seemed that every Tartar was able to double and treble himself, to be at the same time in a number of places, to burn, to slay. They spared not even grain in the field, nor trees in the gardens. Kmichitz had held his Tartars so long in the leash, that at last, when he let them free like a flock of birds of prey, they grew almost wild in the midst of slaughter and destruction. One surpassed the other, and since they could not take captives, they swam from morning till evening in blood. Kmichitz himself, having in his heart no little fierceness, gave it full freedom, and though he did not steep his own hands in the blood of defenceless people, he looked with pleasure on the flow of blood. In his soul he was at rest, and conscience reproached him with nothing, for this was not Polish blood, and besides it was the blood of heretics, Therefore he judged that he was doing a work pleasing to God, and especially to the saints of the Lord. The elector, a vassal, therefore a servant of the commonwealth, and living from its bounties, was the first to raise his sacrilegious hand against it. Therefore punishment was his due, and Kmichitz was purely an instrument of God's vengeance. For this reason, when in the evening he was repeating his litany in peace by the blaze of burning German settlements, 
and when the screams of the murdered interrupted the tally of his prayers, he began again from the beginning, so as not to burden his soul with the sin of inattention to the service of God. But he did not cherish in his heart savage feelings alone, for, besides piety, various other feelings moved it, connected by memory with distant years. Therefore those times came frequently to his mind when he attacked Hovansky with such glory, and his former comrade stood as if alive before his eyes, Kokoshinsky, the gigantic Kulvietz Hippocentaurus, the spotted Ranitsky with senatorial blood in his veins, Ulik, playing on the flagellet, Rekuts, on whom human blood was not weighing, and Zend, imitating birds and every kind of beast. They all, save perhaps Rekuts alone, were burning in hell, and behold, if they were living now, they might wallow in blood without bringing sin on their souls, and with profit to the commonwealth. Here Pan Andrei sighed at the thought of how destructive a thing license is, since in the morning of youth it stops the road for the ages of ages to beautiful deeds. But he sighed more than all for Elenka. The deeper he entered the Prussian country, the more fiercely did the wounds of his heart burn him, as if those fires which he kindled roused at the same time his old love. Almost every day, then, he said in his heart to the maiden, Dearest dove, you may have forgotten me, or, if you remember, disgust fills your heart, but I, at a distance or near, in the night or the daytime, in labour for the country and toils, am thinking ever of you, and my soul flies to you over pine woods and waters, like a tired bird, to drop down at your feet. Only to the country and to you would I give all my blood, but woe is me if in your heart you proclaim me an outlaw for ever. Thus meditating, he went ever farther to the north along the boundary belt. He burned and slew, sparing no one. Sadness throttled him terribly. He would like to be in Taurogi on the morrow, but the road was still long and difficult, for at last they began to ring all the bells in the province of Prussia. Every one living seized arms to resist the dreadful destroyers, Garrisons were brought in from towns the remotest, regiments were formed of even village youths, and soon they were able to place twenty men against every Tartar. Kmichits rushed at these commands like a thunderbolt, beat them, hanged men, escaped, hid, and again sailed out on a wave of fire. But still he could not advance so swiftly as at first. More than once it was necessary to attack in Tartar fashion, and hide for whole weeks in thickets or reeds at the banks of a lake. The inhabitants rushed forth more and more numerously, as if against a wolf, and he bit too like a wolf. With one snap of his jaws he gave death, and not only defended himself, but did not desist from attack. Loving genuine work, he did not leave a given district, in spite of pursuit, until he had annihilated it for miles around with fire and sword. His name reached, it is unknown by what means, 
the mouths of the people, and bearing terror and fright, thundered on to the shores of the Baltic. Babinich might, it is true, return within the boundaries of the Commonwealth, and in spite of Swedish detachments, move quickly to Taurogi. But he did not wish to do so, for he desired to serve not only himself, but the country. Now came news which gave courage for defence and revenge to the people in Prussia, but pierced the heart of Babinich with savage sorrow. News came like a thunderclap of a great battle at Warsaw, which the King of Poland had lost. Karl Gustav and the Elector have beaten all the troops of Jan Kazimir, people repeated to one and another with delight throughout Prussia. Warsaw is recaptured. This is the greatest victory of the war, and now comes the end of the Commonwealth. All men whom the Tartars seized and put on the coals to obtain information repeated the same. There was also exaggerated news, as is common in time of war and uncertainty. According to this news, the Poles were cut to pieces, the Hetmans had fallen, and Jan Kazimir was captured. Was all at an end then? Was that rising and triumphing Commonwealth naught but an empty illusion? So much power, so many troops, so many great men and famous warriors, the Hetmans, the King, Charnyetsky with his invincible division, the Marshal of the Kingdom, other lords with their attendants, had all perished, had all rolled away like smoke? And are there no other defenders of this hapless country, save detached parties of insurgents who certainly at news of the disaster will pass away like a fog? Kmichitz tore the hair from his head and wrung his hands. He seized the wet earth, pressed palms full of it to his burning head. I shall fall too, said he, but first this land will swim in blood and he began to fight like a man in despair. He did not hide longer. He did not attack in the forest and reeds. He sought death. He rushed like a madman on forces three times greater than his own, and cut them to pieces with sabres and hoofs. In his Tartars all traces of human feeling died out, and they were turned into a herd of wild beasts. A predatory people, but not overmuch fitted for fighting in the open field, without losing their genius for surprises and ambush, they, by continual exercise, by continual conflict, had trained themselves so that breast to breast they could hold the field against the first cavalry and scatter quadrangles even of the Swedish guard. In their struggles with the armed mob of Prussia, a hundred of those Tartars scattered with ease two and even three hundred sturdy men armed with spears and muskets. Kmichitz weaned them from weighting themselves with plunder. They took only money and gold, which they sewed up in their saddles, so that when one of them fell, the survivors fought with rage for his horse and his saddle. Growing rich in this manner, they lost none of their swiftness well-nigh superhuman. Recognising that under no leader on earth could they find such rich harvests, they grew attached to Babinich, as hounds to the hunter, and with real Mohammedan honesty 
placed after battle in the hands of Soroka and the Kimlichitses, the lion's share of the plunder which belonged to the Bagadir. Allah, said Akba Ulam, few of them will see Bagcheserai, but all who go back will be Mursias. Babinich, who from of old knew how to live upon war, collected great riches, but death, which he sought more than gold, he found not. A month passed again in battles and labours surpassing belief. The Tartar horses, though fed with barley and Prussian wheat, needed absolutely even a couple of days' rest. Therefore the young colonel, wishing also to gain news and fill the gaps in his ranks with fresh volunteers, withdrew near Dospada to the Commonwealth. News soon came, and so joyful that Kmichitz almost lost his wits. It turned out to be true that the equally valiant and unfortunate Jan Kazimir had lost a great three days' battle at Warsaw. But for what reason? The general militia in an immense majority had gone home, and the part which remained did not fight with such spirit as at the taking of Warsaw and on the third day of the battle a panic set in. But for the first two days the victory was inclining to the side of Poland. The regular troops, not in sudden partisan warfare, but in a great battle with the most highly trained soldiers of Europe, exhibited such skill and endurance that amazement seized the Swedish and Brandenburg generals themselves. Jan Kazimir had won immortal glory. It was said that he had shown himself a leader equal to Karl Gustav, and that if all his commands had been carried out, the enemy would have lost the general battle and the war would have been ended. Kmichitz received these tidings from eyewitnesses, for he had stumbled upon nobles who, serving in the general militia, had taken part in the battle. One of them told him of the brilliant attack of the Hussars, during which Karl himself, who, despite the entreaties of his generals, would not withdraw, came near perishing. All showed the falsehood of the report that the army had been routed or the hetmans had fallen. On the contrary, the whole force, except the general militia, remained intact and withdrew in good order along the country. From the bridge of Warsaw, which was giving way, cannon had fallen, but they were pulled through the Vistula in a breath. The army swore by everything that under such a leader as Jan Kazimir, they would, in the coming battle, conquer Karl Gustav, the Elector, and whomsoever it might be necessary to conquer. As to the recent battle, it was only a trial, though unfavourable, but full of solace for the future. Kmichitz was at a loss to know how the first news could have been so terrible. They explained to him that Karl Gustav had sent out exaggerated reports purposely. In fact, he did not know well what to do. The Swedish officers whom Pan Andrei seized a week later confirmed this opinion. He learned also from them that beyond others the elector lived in fear and was thinking more and more of his own safety. For a multitude of his men had fallen at Warsaw, and disease had seized those remaining so terribly, 
that it was destroying them more quickly than battles. At the same time, the men of Great Poland, eager to make good Ushji and all wrongs, had attacked the monarchy of Brandenburg itself, burning and slaying, leaving nothing behind them but land and water. According to the officers, the hour was near in which the elector would abandon the Swedes and join the more powerful. It is needful to touch him with fire somewhat, thought Kmichitz, so that he may do this the more quickly. And since his horses were rested already, and he had made good the losses among his men, he passed the boundary again at Dospada, and rushed on the German settlements like a spirit of destruction. Various parties followed his example. He found a weaker defence, hence he accomplished more. News came ever more joyful, more gladdening, so that it was difficult to believe it. First of all, it was said that Karl Gustav, who, after the Warsaw battle, had pushed on to Radom, was retreating at breakneck speed to Royal Prussia. What had happened? Why was he retreating? There was no answer to this for a time, till at last the name of Charnyetsky thundered again through the Commonwealth. He was victorious at Lipetz, victorious at Stemieszno. At rather itself he had cut to pieces the rearguard of the retreating Karl. Then, learning that two thousand cavalry were returning from Krakow, he attacked that body and did not let one man escape to announce the defeat. Colonel Forgel, brother of the general, thirteen captains and twenty-four lieutenants went into captivity. Others gave the numbers as twice greater. Some insisted in their enthusiasm that Jan Kazimir had not suffered a defeat, but had won a victory at Warsaw, and that his march along the country was only a stratagem for the destruction of the enemy. Kmichitz himself began to think the same, for, being a soldier from youthful years, he understood war, but had never heard of a victory after which the victor was in a worse condition than before. The Swedes were evidently in a worse condition, and just after the battle at Warsaw. Pan Andrei called to mind at that moment the words of Zagwoba, when, at their last meeting, he said that victories would not improve the Swedish cause, but that one defeat might destroy it. That is a chancellor's head, pondered Kmichitz, which reads in the future as in a book. Here he remembered the further predictions, how he, Kmichitz or Babinich, would go to Taurogi, find his Olenka, persuade her, marry her, and have descendants to the glory of the Commonwealth. When he remembered this, fire entered his veins. He wished not to lose a moment, but to leave Prussians and slaughter for a time, and fly to Taurogi. On the eve of his starting there came to him a noble of Lauda, of Vodiovsky's squadron, with a letter from the little knight. We are going with Sapieha and Prince Mihal Rajivil against Boguslav and Valdetsk, wrote Pan Mihal. Join us, since a field for just vengeance will be found, and it is proper to pay the Prussians for harm done the Commonwealth.
Pan Andrei could not believe his own eyes, and for some time he suspected the noble of being sent by some Prussian or Swedish commandant of purpose to lead him with the chamble into ambush. Had Goshevsky come a second time to Prussia? It was impossible not to believe. The handwriting was Vorodyovsky's, the arms Vorodyovsky's, and Pan Andrei remembered the noble too. Then he inquired where Goshevsky was, and to what point he intended to go. The noble was rather dull. It was not for him to know whither the hetman was marching. He knew only that he was two days distant, and that the louder squadron was with him. Charnyetsky had borrowed it for a while, but had sent it back long ago, and now it was marching under lead of the hetman. They say, concluded the noble, that we must go to Prussia, and the soldiers are greatly delighted, but our work is to obey and to strike. Kmichitz, when he had heard the narrative, did not hesitate long. He turned his chamble, went with forced marches to the hetman, and after two days fell late at night into the arms of Vordyovsky, who, pressing him, said at once, Count Valdetsk and Prince Boguslav are in Prostky, making entrenchments to secure themselves with a fortified camp. We shall march on them. Today? asked Kmichitz. Tomorrow before daybreak, that is, in two or three hours. Here they embraced each other again. Something tells me that God will give him into our hands, exclaimed Kmichitz with emotion, and I think so too. I have made a vow to fast till death on the day in which I meet him. The protection of God will not fail you, said Vordyovsky. I shall not be envious either if this lot falls to you, for your wrong is greater. Yendrik, let me look at you. You have grown perfectly black from the weather, but you have acquitted yourself. The whole division looks with the greatest esteem on your labour. Nothing behind you but ruins and corpses. You are a born soldier, and it would go hard with Zagwaba himself, were he here, to invent in self-praise deeds better than those you have done. But where is Zagwaba? He remained with Sapieha, for he fell into weeping and despair after Kowalski. Then has Kowalski fallen? Vodyovsky pressed his lips. Do you know who killed him? Whence should I know? Tell me. Prince Boguslav. Kmichitz turned in his place as if thrust with a point, and began to draw in air with a hiss. At last he gritted his teeth, and casting himself on the bench, rested his head on his palms in silence. Vovodyovsky clapped his hands and ordered the attendant to bring drink. Then he sat near Kmichitz, filled a cup for him, and began, Roch Kowalski died such a cavalier's death that God grant any man of us to die no worse. It is enough to inform you that Karl Gustav himself, after the battle, celebrated his funeral, and a whole regiment of the guards fired a salute over his coffin. If only not at those hands, at those hellish hands, exclaimed Kmichitz. Yes, at the hands of Boguslav. We know that from hussars who with their own eyes saw the sad end. Were you not there, then? 
In battle places are not chosen, but a man stands where he is ordered. If I had been there, either I should not be here now, or Boguslav would not be making trenches at Prostky. Tell me how it all happened. It will only increase the anger. Pan Mihal drank, wiped his yellow moustaches, and began, Of a certainty you are not lacking in narratives of the Warsaw battle, for every one is speaking of it. Therefore I shall not dwell on it too long. Our gracious Lord, God give him health and long years, for under another king the country would have perished amid disasters, has shown himself a famous leader. Had there been such obedience as there was command, had we been worthy of the king, the chroniclers would have to describe a new Polish victory at Warsaw equal to those at Grunwald and Berestechko. Speaking briefly, on the first day we beat the Swedes. On the second, fortune inclined now to one, now to the other, but still we were uppermost. At that time the Lithuanian hussars, in which Kowalski served under Prince Polubinski, a great soldier, went to the attack. When they were passing, I saw them as I see you this moment, for I was with the louder men on a height near the entrenchments. They were twelve hundred strong, men and horses such as the world had not seen. They passed twenty rods distant from our flank, and I tell you that the earth trembled under them. We saw the Brandenburg infantry planting their pikes in the ground in a hurry to meet the first onrush. Then began firing from muskets, till the smoke covered them entirely. We looked. The hussars had given rein to their horses. Oh, God, what a sweep! They fell into the smoke, disappeared. My soldiers began to shout, They will break them, they will break them. For a while the hussars were invisible. Then something thundered and there was a sound as if in a thousand forges men were beating anvils with hammers. We look. Jesus! Mary! The elector's men are lying like stones on a street, like wheat through which a tempest has passed, and the hussars far away beyond, their streamers glittering. They are bearing down on the Swedes. They struck cavalry. The cavalry were down like a pavement. They struck a second regiment. They left that like a pavement. There was a roar. Cannon were thundering. We saw them when the wind bore the smoke aside. They were smashing Swedish infantry. Everything was fleeing, rolling, opening. They went on as if over a highway. They had passed almost through the whole army when they struck a regiment of the horse guard, in which was Carl Gustav himself, and like a whirlwind they scattered the horse guard. Here Pan Mihal stopped, for Kmichitz had closed his eyes with his fists and was exclaiming, O oh, mother of God, to see such a thing once and then die! Such an attack my eyes will never see again, continued the little knight. We too were commanded to spring forward, I saw no more, but what I tell I heard from the mouth of a Swedish officer who was at the side of Karl, and saw with his own eyes the end. That Forgel, who fell into our hands afterward at Rava, rushed up to Karl. 
O king, cried he, save Sweden, save yourself, aside, aside, nothing can stop them. But Karl answered, no use to yield, we must meet them or perish. Other generals rush up, implore, entreat, in vain. The king moved forward, they strike. The Swedes are broken more quickly than you can count ten. One fell, another was trampled, others were scattered like peas. The king defended himself single-handed. Kowalski rode up and knew Karl Gustav, for he had seen him twice before. A horseman shielded the king, but those who were present said that lightning does not kill more quickly than Kowalski cut him in two. Then the king rushed at Pan Roch. Vorodiovsky again interrupted his narrative and breathed deeply, but Kmichitz cried at once, Oh, finish, or the soul will go out of me. They rushed at each other so that the breasts of the horses struck. They raged. I look, said the officer. The king with his horse is on the ground. He freed himself, touched the trigger of his pistol, missed. The king's hat had fallen. Roch then made for the head of Karl Gustav, had his sword raised. The Swedes were weak from terror, for there was no time to save Karl when Boguslav rose as if from under the earth, fired into the very ear of Kowalski, broke his head and his helmet. Oh, my God! He had not time to bring down the sword, screamed Pan Andrei, tearing his hair. God did not grant him that grace, said Pan Mihao. Zagwoba and I talked of what had happened. The man had served with the Rajivils from years of youth. He considered them his masters, and at sight of Rajivil, it must be that he was confused. Perhaps the thought had never come to his head to raise a hand on Rajivil. It happens that way. Well, he paid with his life. Zagwoba is a wonderful man, for he is not Roch's uncle at all, and not his relative. Still, another man would not have been in such despair for a son. And, to tell the truth, there was no reason, for one might envy Kowalski such a glorious death. A noble and a soldier is born to give his life, if not on the present day, then on the morrow. Men will write of Kowalski, and posterity will celebrate his name. Pan Mihal was silent. After a while he made the sign of the cross and said, Eternal rest give him, O Lord, and may light shine on him forever. For the ages of ages, said Kmichitz. Both whispered prayers for a certain time, maybe asking for themselves a similar death, if only not at the hands of Prince Boguslav. At last Pan Mihal said, Father Piekarski assured us that Roch went straight to heaven. Of course he did, and our prayers are not needed for him. Prayers are always needed, for they are inscribed to the credit of others, and maybe to our own. My hope is in the mercy of God, said Kmichitz, sighing. I trust that for what I have done in Prussia, even a couple of years will be taken from me in purgatory. Everything there is reckoned. What a man works out here with his savour, the heavenly secretary records. I too served with Rajivil, said Kmichitz, 
but I shall not be confused at sight of Boguslav. My God, my God, Prostky is not far away. Remember, O Lord, that he is thy enemy too, for he is a heretic who more than once has blasphemed thy true faith. And is an enemy of the country, added Pan Michal. We have hope that his end is approaching. Zagwoba, speaking in grief and in tears, and as if inspired, foretold the same after that attack of the hussars. He cursed Boguslav, so that the hair stood on the head of every man listening. Prince Mihal Rajivil, who is marching with us against him, saw also in a dream two golden trumpets, which the Rajivils have on their shield, gnawed by a bear, and he said at once next day, Misfortune will meet me or some other Rajivil. By a bear? asked Kmichitz, growing pale. By a bear. Pan Andrei's face became clear as if a gleam of the morning dawn had fallen on it. He raised his eyes, stretched his hands toward heaven, and said with a solemn voice, I have a bear on my shield. Praise to thee, O Lord on high, praise to thee, most holy mother. O Lord, O Lord, I am not worthy of this grace. When he heard this, Pan Miha was greatly moved, for he recognised at once that that was an omen from heaven. Yendrek, cried he, to make sure, press the feet of Christ before the battle, and I will implore him against Sakovich. Prosky, Prosky, repeated Kmichitz, as in a fever, when do we move? Before day, and soon it will begin to dawn. Kmichitz approached the broken window of the cottage and cried, The stars are paling already! Ave Maria! Then came the distant crowing of a cock, and with it low trumpeting. A few hour fathers later, movement began in the whole village. The clatter of steel was heard, and the snorting of horses. Dark masses of cavalry assembled on the highway. The air began to be filled with light. A pale gleam was silvering the points of the spears, twinkling on the naked sabres, bringing out of the shade moustached, threatening faces, helmets, colpacks, tartar sheepskin caps, fur cloaks, quivers. At last the advance with Kmichitz in the vanguard was moving toward Prostky. The troops stretched in a long line over the road and marched quickly. The horses in the first ranks fell to snorting greatly, after them others, as a good portent for the soldiers. White mists hid the meadows yet and the fields. Round about was silence. Only land rails were playing in the grass, wet with dew. End of chapter 50 Recording by David Granville Young